fact, I'm always encouraging uh, people to go out and take a risk. You may fail. That's okay. I think that's one of the biggest struggles I see in today's world is the fear of failure. Go and try something. It may not work out. That's okay. As long as you learn something from it and don't keep repeating your same failure, we're good. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, we're taking a look inside one of the oldest family businesses in the world. From M&M's to Twix to Skittles, there's a good chance the Mars Corporation has been a part of your life. Victoria Mars is the fourth generation of the Mars family. She grew up working at the Chocolate Factory, a real-life Willy Wonka. But when it came time to think about her own career, she wasn't sure the family business was right for her. Until she found her own passion. A role I bet a lot of you listening right now would love to see inside of your companies. Take a listen. Victoria Mars, welcome to No Limits. Well, thank you. I'm excited. I'm very excited to have you with us. And I wanted to have you here because you're a slightly different type of guest than what we traditionally have, but you have this fascinating backstory. Your great-grandfather is the reason that we all enjoy Twix or Snickers or M&M's. Absolutely. And a lot more because actually we're also in pet food. And brands like Whiskas and brands in food like Uncle Ben's, so we're much more than chocolate. So you are the fourth generation yes. of the Mars family, and you grew up all around Mars. What I saw as a kid was actually not a lot because uh, we, my parents, my father tried to keep business separate from family, and I never knew that my father or who I was. Um, I really only knew that my father ran a chocolate factory. Um, and we would go work at this chocolate Willy factory. Willy Wonka. Yes, we would go work on weekends. Um, we'd have to go help with gardens. We would have to help with just keeping it looking nice. So we, you know, we were just average kids. There was no way I knew that. And the only way I actually finally knew who I was or what I should be um, was actually when I got to high school because other kids were saying, you know, you know who you are and you're important. And I had no idea what they were talking about. Really? Did yeah. it? Uh, did it smell like chocolate, by the way, in the town? Where you grew up? Um, it was actually what I'm talking about in Holland. In we were Holland. in Holland and Fehl. Um, it yes, it did. When you got close to the factory, it definitely I, there is an odor that comes from a chocolate factory. There is. So I spent a lot of time in Chicago. I went to school there. I worked there, and there is this. There are parts of the city that smell very much like chocolate because there's a factory in, in Chicago. In Chicago. Yes. So you grew up feeling like I'm just like anybody else. But here you are in this family building one of the world's largest private companies and uh, with names that most people identify with. Most of us have touched or on a probably pretty regular basis consume some product from Mars. Was business something that you thought about pursuing as a kid? Were you always interested in business? Not at all. Um, actually, I was very interested in becoming a doctor. Uh, so my all the way through the beginning of college, I was focused on going to medical school um, and really about the concept of wanting to, to help people um, and be a doctor. But somehow um, in the summer times when, we when I was in uh, college, I worked in the factories, in various factories, and my fa parents 
believed very much in starting at the bottom. So I packed candy. I packed 36 box uh, count boxes of M&Ms. Um, had a great time with other college kids. It was a lot of fun, but learned the business of how it really operates behind the fancy uh, world of business you think of. How long does it take to pack that box of M&Ms, by the way? <laughs> Not very long. If you were an experienced uh, woman, and there were mostly women that were packing on those lines, they were so fast and so quick. They can just do it. I can do it in my sleep, but they could really do it while they were having a conversation with somebody else. I needed to focus on what I was doing. <laughs> so you, you went to Yale. Yes, I then did. Then you went to Wharton, studied business at Wharton. Yes, in between. I mean, I worked in between. In yes. between, you worked for the family business. Yes. And then in 1997, you become the ombudsperson yes. for Mars. So tell us what an ombudsperson does. Right. So first of all, how I became an ombudsman. Um, I, I became an ombudsman. I'd left the business for um, about five years when I had my third and then fourth child, uh, really realizing that I couldn't do it all. This was not working to have a career and a family. And I wasn't doing well as far as I was concerned on anything. So I stepped away for a while. Um, and then came back into the business looking for opportunities, fighting my way back into the business, looking for opportunities. Because in those days, you know, it wasn't um, – you didn't just leave the business and come back. You know, we're talking about we're now in, in the 90s. And so I fought my way back in, and I looked for an opportunity. Um, and my father and my uncle had been thinking about, you know, things were evolving. They were getting older. The business getting bigger. How can the family really stay in touch with what is happening in the business? Because, you know, you get more layers of management, and you don't hear the truth when you're sitting up high. Mm. Um, so the concept, they developed the concept, and they said at a meeting, you, you, we are going to launch this new program, and my niece and daughter sitting out in the audience, because I happened to be at the sales meeting, MMR said, it's going to be our ombudsman. That was my introduction to How did ombudsman. the crowd respond to, respond to that? They were like, oh. And I, and I went up on stage and they said, um, so, say hello. I said, can I say something? Nope. Thank you. We just wanted to introduce you. And off I went. So the first You thing, asked if you could say something while you were on stage? Yes. And they said yes no? All they wanted to just was kind of introduce and say, this is what we're doing. <laughs> and off I went. I had no idea what an ombudsman was. So I then went and did the research and looked into what is an ombudsman, how do I get the training, um, how do I launch this program, and then just embarked on launching this ombudsman program. And the ombudsman program really is about providing an alternative channel of communication for all of our associates, and we call our employees associates, um, to have a place to go to resolve any work-related issue. And what makes an ombudsman different from other channels um, is that, A, it's confidential and absolutely confidential. So an ombudsman does not need to tell anybody uh, who we speak to as an ombudsman. Uh, and the person coming to you doesn't need to tell anybody either. Um, it's informal, so it's an off-the-record kind of thing. Um, it's uh, as independent as you can be because you're employed by a business or you're a contractor being employed by the business, but you're independent from the standard management. So your line, I go, it goes straight up to the CEO or the uh, chairman, so you don't get encumbered by any of the levels of management saying, I don't want to hear what's happening. And then it's neutral. And that's actually the biggest challenge of being an ombudsman is being neutral. So you're not an advocate for the person coming to you, and you're not an advocate for the business. You're an advocate for fair process. So you're trying to help people get over whatever the hurdle is that they're bringing to you and become productive again, happy again, find a right solution. Um, and for me, that was a huge opportunity uh, to find my passion 
of what I really was about. Um, and because I said to you, I wanted to be a doctor originally, and I wasn't quite sure. All these years, I kept saying, maybe I should go back to medical school. Maybe I should you know, be doing this. But when I got the ombudsman opportunity, all of a sudden, I realized that really what being a doctor for me was about helping other people. Mm-hmm. And so when I started this program and launched this program within, within Mars, starting just in North America and then making it global, um, I f- I'd found my passion. And I was satisfied, and I was no longer feeling this need to perhaps go to medical school and do something something different. It's interesting. My The school I went to growing up was a Montessori school, and there was an ombudsman. And I think the class voted on it, and it was in various grades, and it worked in a very similar way to what you're discussing. Do other companies, is this common? Is that a role that you would find in most corporate companies? Most, no, but you will find it in other corporations. Um, Mostly with connections to Europe, or is it an American thing, too? No, no, it's an American thing. Some big corporations have had it. It's come and gone and different things. One of the issues with, of course, an ombudsman program, you are an added cost. Um, And sometimes what happens as a CEO changes or somebody says, oh, this is a cost, this is a burden, we can cut this – Human resources can take care of this. Our compliance company can, uh, group can take care of this. So unfortunately, it often gets rationalized out. Uh, but there are big co- – I mean, American Express used to have a huge program. Coca-Cola's had a huge program. Many of the oil companies have had huge programs. So it kind of comes and goes. I mean, I've been retired from it for a couple of years now, so I'm not up to date on which corporations have it. Uh, but it's one you keep trying to promote because it's such a – it's a way of, of empowering your people and, and making them feel like there's always somewhere they can go when they have an issue. They don't feel they're boxed in or they have to go outside for a complaint. It's really about saying, hey, we care about you. You, you matter to us. We want to try and help you. And we know we're not perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that it also does besides helping individuals, as an ombudsman group, uh, you assemble information and trends. You're looking for trends. What's working? What's not working? What are policies that are good? What are policies that need some changing or adaptation or things you may not even know need changing? Uh, and you, that's what you feed back to management to say, hey, this is what we're hearing from our people. These are the things that aren't working. So it's not the individuals, but it's more the trends you're looking at. And that, and that influences management to make Mars a better place to work, to help make Mars a more attractive place to work, because we're constantly listening to our people and finding and the ombudsman is a channel to, to do that. A different perspective. You know, management gets one perspective. Um, the associates themselves have a perspective, and the ombudsman has a perspective. You kind of bring it all together. And- I would imagine there are a lot of people listening right now thinking, gee, I really wish this existed at my company. So what can you tell us about, for the employee who's out there thinking, I wish this existed. It doesn't. Communication, communication, communication. I, th- I think the, the biggest issue that actually happens and why there are things that aren't working well is lack of communication. People aren't talking to each other. Uh, people aren't taking the time to actually have a conversation. So if you were a manager of other people, uh, what could you be offering your people that work for you is actually giving them time and listening, mm. actively listening to what's going on in their life, what's working, what's not working, not two seconds here, two seconds there. Uh, one of the things that an ombudsman does really well is I have all the time in the world to listen to you. You don't need to give me your story in two seconds. I, I, tell me the whole story. Give me the whole perspective. Uh, so I think one of the 
best things that people, managers can do is give their associates the time and, and listen and, and, and be compassionate. Um, doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but show something that you, you can empathize with what they're going through and, and want to try and help them uh, without saying, I'm going to fix it for you or, or, you know, it's all my fault, not your fault, but just this sense of empathy and listening uh, is, I think, the key That's such a key point because there are so many – I mean, the last 10 years since the financial crisis, companies have been constrained. They've cut costs. They've cut corners. The average employee does the job of three employees. And that small thing of just listening can actually make a massive difference. If you are going to pinpoint in corporate America today one change that – could be made that would improve life for employees beyond listening? What would that change be? <laughs> um, I think the word, the magical word for me that helped me, and it's not always possible, but a sense of uh, flexibility and a sense of understanding, and this I think probably applies mostly to women, but it's not always necessarily, uh, a sense of flex, of, uh, flexible and also the opportunity and uh, understanding of different life stages and different needs at different times in your life. And so it comes back to the listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the important part is, is uh, a career and your working life is not a straight line. Such a good point. Yeah. And for you, it wasn't a straight line. For me, it hasn't uh, been a straight line. What about the the overall story of Mars today. Companies have changed so much in the last handful of years. What they're looking for has changed so much. The consumer, that millennial consumer, has really driven what a lot of companies are doing. And Mars, over time, has been somewhat acquisitive. You've acquired numerous brands over the years that have made the company larger. When you're out there looking for the right product and the right brand, what what does Mars want? The first thing for us are principles and values. The five principles are at the core of how we do business. And we always talk about it's not just it's not just the what, it's not how big we are, it's not about how money much money we're making. It's about how we go about doing business. How do we earn trust? How do we earn respect? So when we're out looking uh, for other brands or other businesses, that is a key component. What are some of the big categories of particular interest right now? Uh, well, pet care is our is our uh, very much of a growing uh, part of our business. And, Everyone uh, loves their pets. Everybody loves their pets, and, and pets are such an important part of your family. And obviously, we're still very proud about of our of our chocolate and confectionery products, and and finding a way to get that to to meet the needs of of people today. We understand that you know there are issues out there, um, and what role could we play in helping? Um, that versus hindering. And so making, you know, putting calorie counts on, making smaller portions, helping people make responsible decisions about what they're consuming um, in their life. But, you know, a treat is a wonderful thing. You know, we all realize that uh, packaged goods is something we've all grown up with um, and it's done some good things. But there are also some things that have happened that nobody, I think, has set out to do. But you realize that, you know, sugar gets added, as you know, to packaged goods. Not because somebody set out and let me let me add sugar to these things, and so we're looking and saying, wait a minute, why is there sugar in this product? How do we take sugar out of our tomato sauce? 
Um, and that also, it, it goes back into so many different things because why did people start putting sugar in tomato sauce? I, when I make my own tomato sauce, I don't put sugar in it. Right. Right. Why? So what happened? Well, because the quality of the tomatoes, if you're not getting ripe tomatoes that are tasty, right, and they're processing, you have to add sugar to bring out the taste. So if you get better quality tomatoes, you don't need to add the sugar. So it's all it's all so intertwined and connected, and we really get passionate about influencing and, and, and doing the right thing and living our principles and our values, which comes back to that's why when we look at other brands and look at what we're doing, those principles and values are, are at the foundation of everything. When I think about the food space especially, I think of it like a boomerang where we started in one spot, we went way out, and now everything's coming back around to be more natural, organic, trying to be more back to basics. Mm -hmm. Growing up, did you have restrictions on how many treats you were allowed to have in a day? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. What, what, did, was there a uh, limit of, of Snickers bars? Well, it's just, it was just, you couldn't, you know, my mother's idea of dessert was fruit. So, you know, <laughs> I can remember saying, My Mom, family, too. Like, no, that's not dessert. That's not Where's the brownies? <laughs> exactly. So, but we were always. Who wants a, dessert? Watermelon. <laughs> what? <laughs> but we always had candy available and we always, you know, had cookies and I, we baked. And so we, had, you know, cookies, cakes, whatever. That was always available, but no. You weren't allowed to live off of that. Do you and have you a favorite your... Mars treat? Changes. I always tell people it changes absolutely. It goes in cycles. Um, it, and it depends. I could be in a part of the world where I can get something that I can't get here. So Maltesers used to not be available in the U.S. It, they are now, but they weren't. What's so, the Malteser? Maltesers is like a malt ball. It comes in a lovely red package with white written Maltesers. It's just newly coming into the, into the U.S., but it's been a brand we've had forever. So I would go to somewhere like the U.K., and I would see Maltesers. So that would be my preferred brand because I can't get it somewhere else. So it changes. It, I mean, I go up and down in different phases, but there's not a day that goes by that I do not have a piece of candy, a piece of chocolate or something. <laughs> I, I, I love I love product. I need that little sweetness. Doesn't have to be a lot, just a little. You talk about the fact that your parents, it was very important to them that you had an appreciation and that you worked what was your thinking along the way when it did sort of become when when people started to acknowledge wait a minute victoria your last name is a very big deal how much did that come into play and and how do you think that changed your approach to life um it definitely did change uh my my approach to life when i was a teenager it was very upsetting uh, because then all of a sudden you start to say, well, does somebody like me because I have this big box of candy that they can access to? Or does somebody like me because of who I am? So that that kind of is the initial reaction. It can be lonely. It's lonely. It, it, it's sad. But I think as time went on, uh, there, there was a point where I, I realized, um, even though I had worked probably at least the first 10 years of my career, was very much like everybody else. You know, I, I very much... I was, I worked with colleagues, and we were all the same age. We all had a good time. We had fun, um, and I didn't really feel any any different. I there was a phase um, where all of a sudden, and I'm not quite sure what triggered that, but I all of a sudden was like, "Oh, I, I wait a minute, I am different." And one of the the difficult things is what it makes you do is it makes you doubt whether you are capable and doing a job and have a job because you are capable of doing it. Or do you have that job because of who you are? 
it was when I got the ombudsman program and realized that I was following my passion. And I think it's so important that you find your passion, something that you really are excited about because your career is going to go on for a long time and there's lots of time that you'll be working. And just to work to work without being excited about who you work for, um, your principles and values align or what your job is and what you're doing is so absolutely critical. So once I, when I did get the ombudsman job and started to launch that and develop that program, that was the real turning point for me to say, yes, I am doing this job and I am capable. Um, so that's one of the difficult things is when you're in your own family business is you're always going, you know, am I really successful or am I only successful because of my last name? Um, and I didn't have the opportunity to work outside the business. Just I'm the eldest of the fourth generation. That's just not what happened. The expectation. Um, the expectation kind of happened, and it was kind of just there. Um, those that came behind me had more opportunity to work outside. And for the next generation, uh, we're definitely saying, you know, you need to get some experience outside. You're welcome to have a career at Mars. We want family members working. But you need you need to get some outside for your own your own well-being, really. It's not just for the business. It's so you can say, yes, I am capable of competing in another world uh, and also competing within my own, my own uh, family business world. That's such an interesting point about the, sort of the revelation of finding your place because even though you came to it in a slightly different way than a lot of people, I think getting to that moment in your career where you think, this is what I was meant to do – Mars was founded in 1911. Most companies by the second or third generation are no longer in the hands of the family. What's the secret to making that work with a family? I think one of the things um, is is understanding that the a family business evolves from being you know a, a the founder to the to the siblings to the cousins. You need to st- start putting processes in place to help manage family relationships that interact with the business. So it's not personal. Right. And it's about what are we going to do, most importantly, when things aren't going well. Yeah. So when there's conflict between you and I, how are we going to handle that? Or when your daughter is not performing in the business, mm. how are we going to manage that? Yeah. So it's really about making sure you're, you're aware that it's going to not be easy. And the more you can do to prepare – the better. And then communication. Again, back to communication. You've got to talk to each other. You've got to meet together. You have to spend time um, understanding each other and, and being willing to, you know, compromise, align, find a way to align and agree. And I think that's where those principles come back and really help us because we all have that common foundation. Um, we all, you know, want to keep this business private. We all are very proud of what it stands for. But we know it all takes a lot of hard work um, to keep it to keep it going. What's the benefit of keeping it private? Um, that's an inter- always an interesting question. I think the the clear benefit I see it as you get to, get to control your own destiny of your company. You 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 get to say uh, we are excited about this and we want to invest in this in the long term. So you know. Mostly people say, well, it allows you to think long term. We're not thinking about what's going to happen next quarter. I'm thinking about, okay, if I make this investment in 10 years, it may pay off and I can be patient about about getting there. Uh, I think that's probably, you know, the most important thing. Um, you should, as a family business, you should be able to understand where your risk level is, but you should be able to take some of those risks because you know uh, and you're willing to be patient 
about what the out- outcome will be. Uh, so, but I think to me, it's you know, you're you're controlling your own destiny. You're able to influence. You're able to keep those principles and those values in there. You, you're able to really influence your reputation by building trust, by making sure that you operate the way you say you're gonna gonna operate. What's been the toughest lesson for you along the way? Uh, the the toughest lesson for me along the way has been really, I mean, probably probably like many women, I think it's most um, part, is realizing that you can't have it all, all the time, um, and that you have to make choices. And, you know, whether you're juggling family, parents, whatever your issues are, you're juggling so many things in life. And thinking that you're going to be able to do them all the time really well just is very frustrating and demotivating, actually. So realizing that you have to make choices at different time. Choices are going to be different for different people at different times. But if making those choices allows you to then focus on what you need to do at that point in time, you come back to it later. You know, when I took the time away from work and said, I can't do all of this and was, was a stay-at-home mom, more or less, um, that was what I needed then. And when, when my children, I was ready to go back, I was able to say, okay, I can now focus more on my career. And then when my children were grown and away from home, I could really focus on my career. So finding, you know, life life evolves and it changes and there are different stages and, and it's not always going to be the same. And you've got to you've got to make those choices and be okay about it. It's okay. It's okay. And we as businesses are learning to adapt to that concept. You know, we want to keep people working for us. We need people that want to stay with us for their careers. Uh, And in order to do that, you have to adapt your processes and understand that people may have to come and go, that people may be able to say, career is my number one right now. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, I've got little babies running at home. Career can't be my number one. I still am committed, but I've got other priorities that I'm trying to juggle. And help me juggle those. Help me make those right choices. Um, and I'll be loyal to you because you will have supported me while it was tough. I think a lot of a lot of people might think that having a, some big wealth at your disposal would make choices like that easier. But the struggles are still the same. Yes. Some of that mental calculus and the emotional side of it is still the same. Absolutely, because you're you're constantly you're st- the guilt. It's the same. It's the same for everybody. You've lived clearly a purpose driven life, and you've integrated that into the company. Sustainability is something that's very important to you. And as I was reading about your story, I was thinking a lot about this conversation we had with Tori Birch not that long ago, where she talked about the importance of coupling social responsibility, social impact, with being a company, and that that was not in vogue 10 years ago when she was initially talking about it. How have you navigated that? If I go back and look, we, we, you know, our history and for the times, you know, I think we've always been conscious of sustainability uh, for years and years and years. Uh, So it was natural, again, in our principles and our values about how we do business. But in the last five years, we've stepped it up. 
and said, wait a minute, we need to do more than what we've been doing. We need to set some really strong targets. Uh, the Livelihoods Fund that I've worked on that I'm actually part of with Danone um, that is in, about improving the livelihoods of smallholder farmers around the world, uh, partnering and collaborating with other people. You can't do it by yourself. This is not a world where you know we, Mars, can go out and solve the problems, but we, businesses, can go out and work together to try and find um how to resolve some of the issues in our supply chain. Um, how, ca- how can we help our farmers have a livelihood that's acceptable? How can we make sure their children are going to school? And it's all about test and learn. I mean, it's all, you know, there's not one solution. So working with others and testing this and this model work, great. Where do I take it and put it somewhere else? That's exciting. It's exciting to realize that you are a business and you can use the business to achieve a, a, a purpose beyond just being a business. Um, and you use the business to make people's lives better. What is the worst advice you've received along the way? <gasps> the worst advice I received was when I was, oh, we're back in the late 70s now, and it's haunted me to this day. So it's, uh, I was, my grandfather, I was living in Europe, um, and my grandfather on my mother's side passed away while I was living in Europe. And at that point, and at that point, you know, one didn't just fly across the ocean. It wasn't quite the way it is today. And the recommendation had been, oh, you don't need to go home for the funeral. Uh, it's really, you know, we had work and, and it wasn't easy to get back and forth. And, you know, I don't remember what all the argument was. But basically the recommendation was, you know, don't get on a plane and go home for the funeral. And and I've regretted that. And mm. it's because family is so important. And, yes. and even, you know, when you're a businesswoman and you're working and you're balancing family and all these things and, and you've got to balance your priorities and you've got to not forget um, who you are and what matters in life. And, and family matters. And to me, family matters a lot. So to me, that's one of these things that, you know, I, I you know, whenever I see somebody else in a similar situation like that, I'll say, go. Mm-hmm. Do not not go because you will regret it. You will feel like you missed it. You weren't there. You didn't get the support, um, and you weren't able to support the rest of the family. It's kind of it works both ways. You didn't get what you needed, and 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 you weren't able to be there with with your family to 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 experience it. So I find that regret comes so much more frequently in life when we don't pursue something as opposed to when we do when it doesn't work out. You're probably absolutely right because I'm always encouraging. Uh, people to go out and take a risk. You may fail. That's okay. I think that's one of the biggest struggles I see in today's world is the fear of failure. Go and try something. It may not work out. That's okay. As long as you learn something from it and don't keep repeating your same failure, we're good. But you're right. This, this, I, I think you're absolutely right when you're talking about this, this, the don't versus go try it. It may work. It may not work. It's okay. Um, and I think that's probably the best advice is go take a few risks, intelligent risks. I don't think you need to go, you know, go go jump off that mountain. That sounds like a good idea. But, you know, things that, that, that feel like they're a risk and it may not work out and you may fail. Uh, you've got to be able to fail in life. You've got to be able to pick yourself back up. Um, and if you have a great support system around you, you can pick yourself back up and there'll be people there to, to help you through the struggles after you've failed. Absolutely. Yeah. My parents used to always say to me growing up, what's the worst thing that can happen? The only thing they wouldn't have been cool with is me going and jumping off the mountain. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Victoria Mars, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this. Likewise. 
All right, it's the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Hannah Margin. She's the founder and designer of Seven Swim. Hannah started the company as a sophomore in college. She's actually still a full-time student, now finishing her degree online, so she can focus on that business. She comes from a family of entrepreneurs. Both her parents and her two siblings started companies, so she has a lot of inspiration around her. What I really appreciate and respect about Hannah is her drive. Starting this company so young, also catering to a market she felt had a white space, high-quality swimwear at an affordable price. It's also eco-friendly. As a college student, Hannah says that she couldn't afford expensive swimwear, and as an avid beachgoer, she grew up 10 minutes from the water. That was important to her. Here she is to tell you more. Hello, my name is Hannah Marjan, and I'm the founder and designer of Seven Swim, a unique and sustainable bikini line. I started Seven Swim while I was still a sophomore at the University of Florida, and I'm still a full-time college student today, along with running the company. Seven Swim was born from my love of the beach and constant search for the perfectly fitting bikini. Seven Swim is created to fill the gap for people looking for beautiful and sustainable swimwear at a more affordable price. All of our styles, prints, and colors are unique to our brand and are designed with the help and input of our amazing community of brand ambassadors. We are just over a year old, and I am so excited to see where the company goes in the coming years. Congratulations, Hannah. Wishing you continued success. Remember, listeners, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Hannah and how she created her business. And don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, or you have a career question, send them here to me at no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I know how busy we all are, and when you write... It means a lot. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Also, thank you so much to those of you who have been leaving us reviews like this one from Madzik, who writes, absolute best podcast. The content never gets old. Love Rebecca Jarvis and the question she asks. Well, thank you, Madzik. I really appreciate that. I bet if we met, I'd love you too. Before we go here today, I wanted to take a few minutes to say a special thank you to a member of the No Limits team who has been with us from the start. She's been our editor from day one, Michelle Boncardo, who works for ABC Radio and has done incredible work for us. She just works around the clock. She she starts her day before many of us do at 4 a.m. She's here throughout the day helping with breaking news reports and interviews and, of course, with everything that we do here on No Limits, and she is moving on to a new opportunity. So thank you so, so much, Michelle Boncardo, who will be editing this episode. So Michelle, as you're editing this episode, um, I hope that you feel the love and support of all of us here at the podcast because you've been such a great support to all of us. And I know all of our guests have really enjoyed getting to know you as well throughout this process. So best wishes to you with all things ahead, which I know will be all good things. And finally, a shout out to our wonderful team here that helps make this happen every week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Michelle Boncardo, our newest editor, Brittany Martinez, Research assistant Annie Osakwe and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.